Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to To Ferret Talk. I'm Melissa Studdard and this is the Blog Talk Radio show for To Ferret, a journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community. You can find it at www.tesferitjournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal, which in each issue presents beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is the generous and gifted Dr. Andrea F. Pollard, who has made it her mission to abolish suffering and promote happiness. She is an author, psychologist, and Zen practitioner, and will be discussing, among other things, her new book, A Unified Theory of Happiness, An East-Meets-West Approach to Fully Loving Your Life which is a groundbreaking synthesis of Western thinking and Eastern philosophy. Pollard holds two master's degrees and a doctorate degree in psychology, and her training as a psychotherapist included various psychodynamic therapies, mind-body therapy, Buddhist-oriented therapy, and meditation and mindfulness practice. As well, Pollard is the founder of the Los Angeles Center for Zen Psychology. Of a unified theory of happiness, Dr. Teresa Wright states, in part, it is Dr. Andrea Pollard's style of language that elicits such a complete human response. The prose is not pragmatic, especially not for the research-based scientifically sound study that it is. It is carefully crafted language with a poetic rhythm. Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. Oh, I'm delighted that you're here. Um, how are you this evening? You know, I had a scare today with my dog, but I think everything's going to be all right. Otherwise, I'm looking forward so much to this interview today. cannot tell you. It's uh, such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you today. Oh, wonderful. I feel the same way and um you'll you'll have to let me know after the show how, how your dog's doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure it'll be okay. Yeah. Okay, well, um I I'm really, really impressed with your quest for happiness. It's so extraordinary to me because you you seek to cultivate it not just for yourself but for others too. Um you're you're kind of like a bodhisattva in that sense. Um, and I wanted to see if you could start by telling us the story of what inspired you and how this became your life's work. Right. It is It is my mission in life to help reduce suffering and to try to spread happiness the best I can. To do happiness for my very own self is just would not ever fulfill me, and I don't think it would work for me or for anybody, actually. So how it started was when I was a child, um, I really doubted that I could be happy. I looked at other people and I saw that they got a lot more than I did. Um, I mean, I mean you, you, it was obvious. It was something very striking. My my family was um, 
basically uh, in a constant war zone. My father was extremely abusive. And we all grew up, all six children, and my mother grew up um, just terrified. And uh, I eventually got a full-blown PTSD. And when I was observing my circumstances and looking at other people, how they were being loved and nurtured and gotten at least some basic sense of security, I I was suddenly at at some point in, in my childhood terrified that I could not be happy, that people like me couldn't be happy. So I, I this question, can I be happy, was always on my mind. It, it was almost like a Zen question, like a Zen mm-hmm. cone. Can mm-hmm. I be happy? Is it possible? And there, there was absolutely no rational question for this answer. I had to have the experience, and the question was all craving for me. I was yearning for some experience that seemed unattainable, unexperienced, you know, just not able to do. And so yet I didn't want to accept that I could be defined by my circumstances. There was this obstinance in me. And I looked <laughs> under every stone and in every corner with a gazillion of methods. I went to psychotherapy. I uh, I kept myself alive with music, art, nature, and uh, I was digging very deep psychologically, confronting my, my inner fears and healing myself. And at the same time, I was also doing a lot of meditation. So naturally, um, there were very natural forms of meditation in church and in nature for me. And, and then eventually I picked up formal meditation and uh, these were two very different approaches to to deal with this question of happiness, you know. And uh, and I remember when I was 26, and I on a very ordinary day in Berlin, I was walking up the subway, my subway station. I asked myself the question, "Can I be happy?" And I was suddenly struck with a realization: I was being happy. I felt completely one with everything. I did not have any struggles, any resistance to what I previously perceived as imperfect, you know, the drunken people on the road, the the graffiti on the uh, the walls. I just Mm. embraced it all. I just experienced such um, oneness, such bliss uh, that that never left me. Uh, and uh, I realized that there was nothing for me to attain, and maybe there was never anything to to attain. It was just that I was able to feel it. Obstacles had been removed, and it came to me. I was visited by that guest of happiness, and I so wanted to spare others my long and arduous way, <laughs> and I don't think everybody mm-hmm. has to invent the wheel, and I wanted to basically find out what is it that made me and other people happy and share that mm-hmm. with people so that we can, you know, because also I felt one with people. I feel very seriously that uh, all human beings are my brothers and sisters and my and all animals are my extended family. And I, I you know, not to take care of them would not make any sense to me, you know, not to try at least to help point the way and be there. So this book became an extremely important expression of this yearning 
to give back and to share and to help others. And it took me an enormous amount of time to write it, not only because I'm German, because <laughs> it's <laughs> but it was. It took a long time to create a German English style and but and to to yeah to craft these sentences. It just took me a long, long time. Well, you know, one of the things that I really love in the book is that you actually define happiness, which is a surprisingly complex and simple matter at the same time. I know it's paradoxical, um, but would you would you kind of talk about that now, like how you defined happiness in the book? Because it, it surprised me a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. That you, it surprised you that I did it in the first place, or the definition surprised you? Well, both, Andrea, in in a mm-hmm. wonderful way um, and a great way of being surprised. I was surprised that you would define happiness because it seems like such a difficult thing to define, and I love your definition of it. But I was also surprised that um, the distinctions that you made about what happiness is not, <laughs> you know, were kind of light bulbs for me. Yeah. You know, they were light bulbs. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd love to share that with the listeners. Yeah, I think that's always a good beginning to say what happiness is not because it, we can agree on that much easier, right? Um, so, of course, happiness is not money. Of course, we all have a little inclination to think so. Deep down, we kind of believe, oh, if I only had a million dollars or ten million dollars. But we all know it's not true. When we really think about it, we know a lot of people who um, – I mean, uh, maybe not personally, but uh, through the media, that have achieved uh, material success and are not happy. Um, mm. Happiness and uh, material success have very little to do with each other, and our research has confirmed that. And uh, physical beauty, as much as we want it, and it's okay to want it, but it does not make us happy. And mm. They found also in research uh, that uh, people who like their looks, no matter how they look, that contributes to your happiness. So to accept who you are, that helps you very much. So it's not power, because the ones who who have power are always afraid to lose the power. And so in, in all, I think, putting it in a nutshell, I would say happiness is not when we survive well. I think that's the distinction that most people do not make. Uh, happiness is not surviving well. So when I'm having a pleasurable life, when I'm having comfort and everything seems peaceful on the outside, that's surviving well. And when I don't have any troubles, when my washing machine breaks down, that must be happy. <laughs> you know, that's surviving well, mm-hmm. and that has mm-hmm. merit to a point, as we all know. But it isn't happiness. And so I asked myself the question what happiness was because I was bothered by the fact that the scientists don't usually uh, define happiness because they kind of think it's hopeless, it's too uh, elusive, it's different from person to person. Oh, we kind of all know what we're talking about. And then they'd go ahead and do their research and uh, I think what they're really measuring is a whole, you know, a whole variety of things. Like if they did the with the, uh, any questionnaire here uh, in Malibu, I live close to Malibu, California, uh, they would probably find out that secretly people believe that happiness is having really big boobs, you know? <laughs> and, 
is it, or secretly the men think that it's really pumped up and being very successful here and by, and having a, a big mansion. So we all uh, associate something different when we think concretely. What is happiness? Um, so I could not get to a definition by thinking of what exactly makes people happy. That varies so much from person to person, and a lot of answers are also just not true. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I had to look at the phenomenon, at the actual experience of happiness, and I did a lot of research. I did my own study of how to how people who experienced happiness would describe it. And so, of course, I was digging in. I don't know how many aphorisms I looked up and how many poems and, and in fiction and in nonfiction alike I looked for expressions of happiness and looked at how do people who are happy describe happiness. And that brought me to two very, very different ways of happiness that seemed to contradict each other. And uh, um, before I become too technical, do you mind if I share a little poem that I wrote to illuminate that particular question, what happiness is? Oh, sure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so it's based, it's inspired on William Blake's uh, poem, Eternity. My sense of existence is the winged joy I do not grasp, will not destroy. Kind attention to its home, my life, the life, will sharpen it alone. So for me, when, you know, for me and for a lot of people when they describe happiness, it seems to be that happiness is when people sense life, sense their existence, sense sense their participation in life, when they feel fully engaged and feel themselves in a in a flow. And yet you can do that in two very different ways. And one of which I describe from the Western perspective in that we focus on the concrete in life and get lost in that pursuit of the concrete. And the totally opposite way is when we focus on the indefinable in life. And uh, that I describe from the Eastern perspective because they are doing that so beautifully and so well for so many hundreds of years, describing life, existence, the oneness. And uh, I think when we are able to focus on both, the concrete in life in a way that that creates a flow in which we can get lost, and when we experience the already existing flow of life, then we can be fully happy and experience ourselves fully connected and as, as as real participants in life. And I think that's what happiness is. And I think most people can resonate with that, you know, because I'm describing the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's great. Thank you. And I love um, the poem and the way it relates to the quotes that you had throughout the book because there was this um, motif of flight and wings that went through the whole book, both in, in what you wrote and in the quotes. And I love the, the epigraph, too, the um, Blake. And, um, it, it you know, you have this, theory which you call these two together that you're talking about the basic and supreme modes are the two wings of happiness (laughs) 
And um, I love that. I was kind of wondering if if that was inspired by the Blake quote or how how that um, theory developed for you. Um, yeah, you know, you I wish I yeah I wish I had the poem before I wrote that book, but I found it actually um, afterwards. Uh, mm-hmm. the, I mean, in the very end process of my book. Um, but the, in fact, my book I wanted to call the Two Wings of Happiness, mm-hmm. um, connecting Western with Eastern thought. Um, but my publisher sounds true; they are wonderful people, and but they did think that my book should get a different title, so it's called a Unified Theory of Happiness, an East meets West approach to fully loving your life. But though that they, but they left in that metaphor of the two wings. I, you know, um, what inspired it, um, I am a, probably a very sentimental person, and I love <laughs> everything to do with birds and metaphors in songs, in, in poetry, in books. I loved uh, uh, Jonathan, what's, what's it called, uh, the Jonathan Siegel. Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Mm-hmm. I loved that so much, how he felt, how the 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 uh, seagull first needed to excel in a concrete well in a concrete way and then eventually realized that it is being here that is the ultimate uh, i loved that dichotomy in that book i loved when barbara streisand sang her song <laughs> why <laughs> only have a piece of the sky and i felt mm-hmm. you know this kind of resonated with my a love for life and my, um, yeah, there's such yearning and striving for me that I shall not be pinned to the ground. I shall also have wings. It looked like I was going to flap like a chicken <laughs> when, I was, <laughs> when I was young. And I, I, I did not quite know how to fly, but I wanted to. I wanted to experience that freedom and uh, that joy that I associated with that. And I do believe that we can invite that with not just uh, changing our mind, not just changing our thoughts, but also mm-hmm. with our actions and the way we look at things, the way we live life with with the way of Zen. I think we can make that happen. Um, you know, actually, one of the really great things about the book is that you do go into very practical examples of how to do that. I mean, we've been talking a lot of um, theory tonight, but you, you also go in and you say, okay, now, you know, you need connection, you need competence, you need tranquility. You know, these things are mm-hmm. the things that will bring you happiness, and here's how you attain these things. Um, I, I wanted to see if you would be able to maybe take one of those, um, like connection, for example, or just, you know, one that that appeals to you tonight and sort of tell a a little bit of detail like you did in the book just to give a flavor for um, how you did that. Sure. Um, Yeah, one thing that always bothered me about other books on happiness when they talked about connection, it seemed to be reduced to one variable, which was compassion. You have to be compassionate. Mm -hmm. And maybe another another variable would be to be peaceful. Like Thich Nhat Hanh is a very famous Zen Buddhist, and he always talks mm-hmm. about being here and being peaceful. And while I think these are essential, 
for any connections. I don't think that there are enough. I think they are basically necessary, but they're not enough. We do need more, and, uh, and nobody would know that better than me because when you grow up not having very specific skills, the way you communicate, the way you relate, how you stand up for yourself, and how you express appropriately your anger or your wishes. And when you don't know that you're, and you don't have any interest in learning this, you're probably going to be a very lonely nun or monk <laughs> without <laughs> wanting to be so. You, know, you have to learn these things. And it was difficult for me to be so concrete, but I did, I did think about what makes connections work. Where mm-hmm. after being peaceful and having this general attitude about people, you know, that comes from compassion, that you do not want to hurt somebody, that you don't think it's okay to dump, to act out your anger after that. And I thought, what makes it, ha- uh, what makes a connection really happen? Most people who cannot connect, they're lost. They don't really know why. And we need to kind of read about it, I think, to mm-hmm. see what particular um, building block of connections I don't have. So I thought about what uh, what it entails, and um, I, I can't list them, you know, p- p- precisely in the order that I I uh, I've written down. I've written them down, but it, that's hardly important because a lot of it could be in a different order. <laughs> Anyhow, right, right, <laughs> yeah. So. In, you know, to to be able to find somebody who is appropriate to be selective is okay. That's very important, and we need to know how to select a person. We don't have, we cannot be attracted to everybody. We can love everybody in a spiritual way, but we cannot make it work with everybody. We need to know what's compatible, what we need, and what we could not deal with. So I think that's something that's important, but we just can't go overboard with that. Then nobody seems good enough. We have to be able to validate people. That's another building block. And uh, I don't know, a lot of men would probably now say, yeah, that's what went wrong in my relationship. (laughs) My wife always thought, you can't listen. You always want to change me. You can't let it be. You can't just listen to my feelings and so validation is an art that we need to learn when we haven't automatically learned it at home. And we can become much better at it when we really think about it. Some people don't even want to say, hmm, in a, in a connection. You know, they feel it's a waste of the energy. Uh, but it is a lot about uh, the, the eye contact, uh, not, a lot of nonverbal behavior that validates the other person. Hmm, is actually also considered nonverbal communication. And then uh, really being able to understand and then uh, reflect that back. Oh, I hear you. So you're very angry about this today because, and you just be able, you're, you should be able to recount the other person's perspective. And if if you don't know how to do that, you will probably frustrate the other person. And uh, so this is a very important skill. Um, when it comes to to love, I think it's enormously important that we are having the ability to just have fun with each other. <laughs> that gets so much lost mm-hmm. in the in ordinary life because uh, you know suddenly we are all concerned with our just 
you know, how to get the kids from A to B, or just uh, just our ordinary lives. And it, it seems to to be very overwhelming, especially these days. So to have fun, uh, to to share on that level, that's a very important thing for women to understand because a lot of women. Mm-hmm. Think you know they don't they they nothing resonates and it's very possible the readers don't don't you know the listeners uh, the female listeners just really like shrug their shoulders you know what really having fun why is that so important it's enormously <laughs> important for men because they connect the most in when they in their actions so it's enormously mm-hmm. important to connect there and to come toward the other person and say you know let's do this. Together, I will come with you or participate in this activity and enjoy and make sure we have that, not wait finally uh, somebody will come and kiss me away and I will get this and then I will be happy with my husband. But you need to, you need to ste- step out and make a real effort in this, um, in this area. And uh, couples and, you know, any, any, any heterosexual or homosexual couples, it doesn't matter, we all have to say yes to the other person again and again and again. The longer we know somebody, the more we know the person's limitations. We need to be able to say yes to every single one of those. And really, uh, we, we can state what we don't like, but once that's determined, once that we've expressed that, we have to treat it as something you know that's the price we pay for being with this wonderful person and uh, I will be there for the limitations I will accept them and I have to say yes to everything not just the positive and so that I think is the ultimate love when we say yes to the everything yes to everything of, uh, of our partner so these are just some of the the building blocks and I think when we are having a problem with connections it is um we we usually don't see where it goes wrong. We need somebody else to tell us, "Hey, you know, um this is what 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 when what goes usually wrong in your relationship." And you know, it helps so much sometimes to ask somebody else, "Be honest. What do you think? You know, what am I not doing <laughs> right in my relationships? Just give it to me. I'm going to forgive you no matter what you say. Just tell me what you think I'm doing or not doing." And to get some reality feedback here, that's, I think, also a a very good tool, something we can do for our connections. Oh, nice. Thank you. Um, You know, I want to go back to something you were talking about a little bit earlier, um, too, when you talked about survival. And um, this was something that really fascinated me in the book because you talked about how Basically, we're we're not genetically predisposed for happiness. We're genetically predisposed for survival, and happiness and survival really aren't always the same thing. And in fact, trying to survive can interfere with our cultivation of happiness um, if we don't properly distinguish between the two, between surviving well and happiness. So, um, I wanted to see if you could talk about that just a little bit more because that is just really, really fascinating. I mean, how did you come upon that? Well, I thought about it for a long time. I because I'm a great, um, I am in. I'm a humble admirer of science and biology. I I think that the biologists have very important points when they just keep it very grounded and say, look, we are all 
basically selfish and they exaggerate this because they for many many biologists for the longest time didn't talk about cooperation and that actually cooperation is what made us human beings and made us strong and made us you know that but it is enormously important i think to accept that we are animals and that we do adhere to the same evolutionary pressures uh, as everybody else. This is our animal nature that we want to survive and uh, with very few exceptions. Um, and uh, this is something we need to, I believe, bow to. It's part of what we need to do when we want to be happy in the long run. Now, in the short term, it's not necessary. But in the long run, something, I think, will catch up with us and we won't understand. And we won't I think people who deny their body deny the reality of their body and that that body wants to survive and that it does so and that it is tempted to be competitive, tempted to want to be ahead and that, that it does that unconsciously. If we, don't, if we don't accept that reality, we will act it out. That's my, my fear. We will act it out unconsciously without knowing what we're doing, and it invites um, us to become hypocritical and not mm. honest. And I think honesty is very, very important. Um, so, But my Buddhist friends, of course, they they took great offense or take great offense that I shall say that because, it, you know, about our human nature, uh, because um, in Buddhism we want to see that we have all potential and that we have a much, much higher potential for, uh, than, than just to, to act like, like animals. And, so, and I agree with my Buddhist friends. Uh, and I, I do believe that within our biological nature is a greater nature that allows us to go you know, and transcend our biological need to survive. That mm-hmm. is called our Buddha nature or just our potential to mm-hmm. not be the slaves of our giant, of our genetic programs. We don't have to be the slaves. But I think consciousness and honesty and humility are enormously important. I mean, I know, Melissa, you are a Zen woman yourself, and <laughs> don't you find that that humility is so important for, for the, the Zen way, for being... Um, to be a happy person, eventually you will be caught up by your own lies, you know, if you're not humble <laughs> about your limitations and if you cannot see them, you cannot say them. You have to make other people believe you are fantastic at all times above <laughs> and beyond. <laughs> it it mm-hmm. puts so much pressure on you and you can never show your real face. You can never be authentic, really. So I think it's freeing to acknowledge that we do have a biological nature and that it is quite powerful and that we we need to come to a commitment in our lives. You know, this is uh, goes hand in hand with the Bodhisattva vow that people who uh, uh, in in Mahayana Buddhism uh, who want to go the Buddhist path they 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 um, they vow to help others before they would. You know, it's basically enter nirvana, complete um, contentment and inner peace. 
um, they would go out and struggle and they would go out and try to help others. That's not really accepting reality the way it is. It's like helping other people to take that next step, to overcome that other hurdle and to do it in a way that they can hear it. And, uh, yeah, I think we need to do that. We need we need to take a vow, a pledge of some sort uh, to dedicate our lives to not just be these animals pinned to the ground. You know, I love animals, by the way, so much. <laughs> I, <know you> do. <laughs> uh, I didn't mean it that way, not just animals, but the no, animals are what the animals are, right? But that we can transcend our animal biological nature and we can uh, pick up our wings, develop our wings, cultivate our wings, and fly with both of them. And uh, we can we can do that. And we need a lot of commitment, I think. Well, that's that's really beautiful. And um, I love what you're saying, and that we have to we we have to understand it and accept that it's there in order to be able to transcend it. You know, if we're yes. trying to say it's not there, then then you know it it comes out in the like you said in the unconscious way. So. Um, you know, one thing that I was laughing so hard about um, in your book that I just loved was, and you said this in a really offhanded way, you just made this offhanded comment about the Western fear of inactivity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and I know that the book is all about balance and finding that balance between being actively engaged with life and, and then having that, you know, being in that state of just being and receptivity. So I just wanted to see if you could elaborate a little bit on that since, um, you know, this is predominantly a Western audience. We are in America. Um, You know, how maybe Westerners can overcome that fear of inactivity? Yeah, the first question we should ask ourselves, what are we so afraid of? And stop. And stop and look at our fear and acknowledge it's there if uh, just uh, anybody who listens right now is already stopping, is already taking a time, and we can ask ourselves immediately right now, what is it that I'm so afraid of? Why can't I relax? I had a, a friend who, she had two children, and I said, come on, I take care of your two children, and you, you can take a nap or you can read a book. She said, oh, I cannot read a book. I'm feeling I would feel way too guilty. So in her case, the fear was guilt that she wasn't going to be there for her children. And uh, I think uh, there's different types of fears and guilt that makes people run. And somehow mm-hmm. we all want to join that rat race and win a crazy race. And when we really think about it, is that really going to help our happiness when we are when we when we are there, when we, we, we picture ourselves to have arrived in that mansion, to have arrived at having these fantastic children who can go to Harvard University and Yale or at the soccer match, they win every game and whatever uh, ambition we have, is that really going to help us to become happy? I think we need to ask ourselves a lot of questions in order to define what is it that we are running away from, or what is it that we are guilty, what we feel guilty about, or what is it that we are trying to to acquire uh, and are afraid not to get it or afraid 
to realize that maybe we will never get it. Maybe that's the fear. Uh, but mm-hmm. to really look inside and see uh, if I, when I stop, uh, what would happen? What 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 gain do I get out of my franticness, the stressful life that we are all um, victim to right now? I mean, it's it's just become crazy. I mean, with the technology that we have available to ourselves, people are nonstop working, so it seems. Um, mm. You know, they, we are we don't uh, switch off the phone. We are afraid to uh, not be available, and and we it's very important for us, I think, to uh, try to figure out why that is. And I believe it connects to the survival mode. I do believe in some way or the other, we are afraid that somehow we won't be able to survive, or that all is lost and that we cannot make it, and that we will never make it, and that it is hopeless, and that we are going to be punished forever. But we, each of us has to ask the question, to, because there will be a personal nuance to it connecting to our past conditioning, what exactly we are afraid of, what exactly do we feel hopeless about, or what what is it that we think we need to uh, acquire for the sake of maybe those who used to love us, you know, may, our, our parents, if they're still alive, maybe we think we are worthy of their love when we do. It, it's going to be uh, a different answer for every single one of us. And But there is this drivenness, and, you know, because this was a very psychological answer I just gave to you. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but there's a more... <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do believe there's also a, um, a philosophical uh, answer to that, in that in the West uh, we are we have subscribed to that philosophy of having to make ourselves worthy of God. There is always this distinction there between me and God, or between me and the world, between me and you, between a feeling and another feeling between a thought and another thought. There's always a distinction there. There's always a separation there, creating an incredible amount of anxiety because human beings aren't really happy when they feel isolated. We are social human beings. I mean, we are social beings. So by by constantly feeling the separation uh, from everything within and without uh, it creates an like an angst, an ex- existential fear, a drivenness, uh, and uh, I do think it's time for us to open our ears to what the Buddhists have to say and the and uh, what the Hindi have to say about this, because in the East, even though they have such diverse religions. Um, there is this one thing they all have in common, so it seems, and that is they don't feel, in, I mean, at least in their philosophy, they don't feel that uh, or they don't think that we are part, that we are separated from the world. We, they think mm-hmm. we are part of this world and it is our job to to realize that oneness. It's our job to stop seeing all these distinctions and boundaries and uh, but that we need to take that uh, veil uh, away and uh, 
feel our connection and our interaction and our commonalities. And so there is less of, uh, uh, at least it, it's conducive to Buddhism. You know, that kind of thought, even though a lot of people don't have that in the East and they're happily striving towards towards Western goals right now. Um, but there is this philosophy that uh, that is more conducive to inner peace and being here. Um, and I think it's time for us to learn from that and to stop and to see, are we really separated from one another? Is, is, is You know, I, I feel a great connection with you right now. <laughs> you know, I feel yeah, a great I know what you feel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I feel yeah. a great connection. Mm-hmm. Melissa, yeah, could I could I take just a moment? The interview is wonderful. I knew it would be fabulous. Oh, I, thank you. For both of you, you are just amazing. I wanted, if I could, just take a, a half a moment and just ask Andrea just one question, if that's okay, before we end mm-hmm. this amazing interview. Well, let me um, – we've got um, four minutes left, and mm-hmm. um, I would like to make sure that Andrea also has a, a moment just to say um, – or why don't you just tell – our listeners what your website is so that if they want to find out about any upcoming events or publications, they can, and then Jeff can ask his question. Yeah, everything will be posted on my website, andreapolar.com, and Polar is with one L. That's uh, Most people want to write it with double L. It's one L, andreapolar.com, and yeah, you will find everything there. I'm on Facebook, of course, Andrea F. Polard. And I am on Twitter under the name Zen Psychology, and uh, you will find everything you need there. I have a lot of resources on my website, a happiness questionnaire and resources, free resources. So I invite people to look at it and have fun with it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Jeff? Hi. Well, here's my question, Uh, and once again, I want to say what an amazing interview it's a known physiological fact that through merely making ourselves smile, we produce endorphins, the body's natural mood enhancers, you know, which make us feel happier in that moment. And I've tested that, and it does work. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, what thoughts, Andre, can, can we tell ourselves to shift our mood states, which will produce the same effect, but in a long-lasting way, not that transitory smile for a moment or laugh for a moment, but more long-lasting, we, thoughts we can give ourselves and gifts we can give ourselves that will last us a lifetime to be happier. Well, I don't, I wish there was this magic bullet, but there is no magic bullet. But it is a beautiful exercise to smile when we know there is nothing we can do to change our circumstances, to smile to these circumstances, but use your eyes too, women, because women are you know, especially afraid of getting wrinkled, crow feet, but when you want to use that technique, you want to really squint your eyes and really smile, a big smile, and give it as a gift many times to yourself, to your suffering, to other people. That's one thing that connects people, exchanging that gift. And that has an impact on our lives because every day we can give that as a gift to somebody else and feel our connection to the to the world, whether they smile back or oh, not. <laughs> what a beautiful question and what a beautiful answer. Um, Andrea, thank you so much. It's just been great talking to you, and I love the book. It's a wonderful gift um, to all of the readers and everybody who comes across it, so I highly recommend it. 
Um, and I just want to say thank you and um, have have a good night and let me know about your dog. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Melissa. Oh. What a pleasure. Oh, it has been. Good night. Good night. Before we close, I'd like to let our listeners know that you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of The Ferret Journal at our website, www.theferretjournal.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the new Teferit Talk book. It's a collection of our best interviews from the first year of Teferit Talk Radio and is available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other bookstores, as well as at the website. Also have a look at the special invitation from Hay House Publishers to join authors Marianne Williamson, Nancy Levin, and Reed Tracy for a writer's workshop in San Francisco, October 5th through 6th. As well, Hay House is offering a speak, write, and promote workshop with Cheryl Richardson and Reed Tracy in New York City, November 1st through November 3rd. I'd also like to thank my executive producer and Teferit publisher, Donna Stein, producer and Teferit associate editor, R.J. Jaffries, contributing editor and assistant producer, Udo Hentz, and Michelle Mingan for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. Our next interview will be October 21st from 1 to 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with poet Alfred Korn. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work. Until then, goodbye.